Welcome to The Ocean, episode 34. I'm Adam Mosley. Today we're talking theology in a way you've probably not heard it before. No systematic theology or process theology. We're talking activist theology. Just after I rant a little bit about Theobros. So stick around. The Ocean Podcast. Life and faith that's welcoming, affirming, and encouraging to others and yourself. Here's our host, Adam Mosley. As you probably know, I like hanging out on social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, not Facebook so much because it's just a cesspool. But I noticed something this week that was happening mostly on Twitter because frankly, it's becoming more of a cesspool these days, which I blame on the former guy dragging his followers over there. But anyway, conservative Christian leaders on Twitter, mostly of the Reformed or Calvinist variety, and all men, because that's the only kind of leader they recognize, decided that this was the week to remind people that they think that women aren't worthy of certain church roles. Women shouldn't preach or teach. Women shouldn't be on church boards. Women shouldn't be in any position of authority or leadership uh, or teaching uh, over men. Now, no day is a good day for misogyny, but the days leading up to Mother's Day, really? Like, look, I'm no big fan of Mother's Day. I recognize that it's problematic in many ways. It's it's triggering for a lot of people uh, for a lot of different reasons. But but maybe just maybe if you're going to amplify your cis male supremacy, Maybe you could not pick a day devoted to women to do that. Maybe you could just say thank you to the women in your life and be on your way. Maybe maybe you could just shut up for a day. Instead, all these men who want to be considered very important in Christian circles decided to all lives matter all over Mother's Day. <clears throat> Bonked the thing. Instead, all these men who want to be considered, you know, very important in Christian circles decided to all lives matter all over Mother's Day with a side of, I love my mom for her procreative ability and cooking prowess. Because women, it seems, are only valued in these circles for what they produce. Men, however, in the minds of these very insecure men, deserve honor and respect simply for having something hanging between their legs or, or, or turtling or whatever it's doing. Like, I think it's dumb to think that someone should be revered because they have 11 weeks of training and a gold badge that says police. I definitely don't think a Y chromosome makes someone worthy of automatic honor and respect. Man, if you want to be honored, be honorable. If you want to be respected, be respectful. Dehumanizing women... Dehumanizing women and telling them to stay in their place, to stay in the kitchen, directly or indirectly, just shows how cowardly, weak, and insecure you really are. Intelligent, wise, strong, creative, decisive women are not a threat to this world or to the church. They are a vibrant, life-giving thread woven into creation from the beginning of time. They embody the image of God. And a lot of them are better at speaking, better at exegeting, better at interpreting, better at theology. 
theologizing. And a lot of them are better at speaking, better at exegeting, better at interpreting, and better at theologizing than any theobro or megachurch pastor or loudmouth blogger or podcaster, including but not limited to myself. And if your church or your church leaders tell you otherwise, you are absolutely entitled to walk. And if your church or church leader tells you otherwise, you are absolutely entitled to walk right out the damn door. And you don't have to, you don't have to stay where you aren't welcomed. Fuck. You don't have to stay where you aren't welcome. But let me tell you where you are welcome. Right here at the ocean and on the front porch of our guest. I was first introduced to their work about a year ago by my friend and uh, podcast guest here, Josh Scott. Uh, they are a transqueer activist, Latinx scholar, and public theologian, brilliant thinker who transfers theory, philosophy, and theology into meaningful action for social change. They're also the author of uh, Activist Theology and founder of the Activist Theology Project. So Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, welcome to the ocean. Thank you. Uh, you know, the, the thought of being welcomed into the ocean, into a body that is flowing after being tethered to the four walls of my house in Nashville, uh, I, I have a somatic response to that welcome. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. And I'm thrilled to have you. This is something that we've been uh, trying to make happen for a little while, uh, but you are a very busy person and you just happen to be on sabbatical right now. So I, I first, I want to thank you for sort of breaking your sabbatical to, to come on the podcast. Um, let's just start out with like, cause, cause this is big for you. What is activist theology? Like people have heard of all kinds of different types of theology and theologians. Um, but you have really embraced this term activist theology. What does that mean to you? So yes, I am. I am taking some time to talk to you on on my sabbatical. But what that means for you is that you're getting a fresh mind, a rested body, a calm spirit, um, and so I'm ready for our conversation. Um, activist theology is a myriad of things. It is not just one thing. And I think you know sometimes when people hear this phrase, they think, "Oh, you just mean protesting." That's not what I mean, actually. Um, activist theology is deeply informed by my own training as a liberationist theologian, uh, my own orientation as a trans queer activist, um, and my sort of cultural orientation as a Latinx. And activist theology in the vein of liberation theology, which includes things like Black liberation theology, womanist theology, disability theology, et cetera. Activist theology is, is trying to say two things. One is all theology is ethics. All dogma that we embody shows up in our behaviors. That's one thing. All theology is ethics. Yeah. The other thing that activist theology is trying to say is that ideas can change the world. And, and our ideas, when we embody them in ourselves, in our own body, 
And when we are in relationship with other people, it changes shit. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not just theoretical. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, for me in reading your, I read your book last fall. Um, the book is called activist theology. It's available everywhere. Uh, it, people should go pick it up. Um, when I read it, what I heard was, um, a desire to, uh, to activate all of those things that compel you inwardly, like mm-hmm. to, to put, to put hands and feet to this stuff, um, rather than just sort of keeping it inside the halls of, of academia. Um, oh, it is, it is totally that it is. It, I mean, I mean, people, people know the story because I've, I've shared it several times, but after the 2016 election, um, I, I had a faculty post in Berkeley, California, and thought that moving to the San Francisco Bay Area uh, would be like queer utopia, and that I would like find my people, I'd be like this radical queer scholar, uh, this sort of theologian avant-garde, and I would find these, these avant-garde cafes, you know, playing weird music, and I would be exchanging ideas with my colleagues and actually the exact opposite is true I couldn't find my people uh every cafe I went to it was too loud and too hipstery um and so after the 2016 election I decided to move home to the south and uh, a friend of mine Tony Jones uh said to me you need to move to the middle of America because you have spent too much time in academia and it's true, you know, I have three degrees in theology. Uh, I started as an undergrad, right? I'm very serious about this discourse. And I'm in love with it. I'm, I'm in love with this idea of meaning making through divine resources. And when I was living here in California and couldn't find my people, and Tony said, you know, I said, I'm going to move home to the South. And he said, you need to find middle America and spend time in Walmarts and Targets around real people <laughs> you know nashville was kind of middle america for me and yeah. and yeah i'm originally from northern mexico the republic of texas but can't really go back to texas because of who i am yeah. um and, and so i thought nashville a blue city in a red state you know it's a little bit like austin or a lot like austin right. um which is not far from my home city of san antonio and, and so you know i moved back to nashville and i launched the activist theology project, because I wanted people to be living out their theologies. We all have theologies. Everything is theological, where we bank, where we buy our coffee, what kind of car we drive, where we buy our gasoline. Mm -hmm. It is all theological. And remember, all theology is ethics. So our practices come from some some kind of belief. And most often, we don't interrogate our inherited beliefs. Yes. And so activist theology comes out of my scholarship that the collaborative project is a meaning-making project that is basically trying to say, we can have community in this different way by living out our values of, yeah. of collaboration and hospitality and, you know, sort of radical practices around sustainability and resilience and whatnot. But um, I couldn't find my people in California. And when I moved to Nashville, it was like, 
it all fell into place. And, and now, you know, as I look back on it, activist theology is more than just protest theology. Activist theology is actually how do we put into action what we believe? And how do we do that in relationship? Because I think, you know, I grew up evangelical and, and, you know, would love to, Josh and I talk a lot about this, how how to reclaim evangelical so that it's not, so, so it doesn't just mean toxic white (laughs) bullshit. Right. Um, Because there are some really great things about evangelicalism. Um, And, you know, coming back to the South and sort of, being back immersed in that culture and that environment, I, I realized that we actually don't know how to be in relationship with one another. Yeah. We don't know how to be human with one another. And so p- a big thing about activist theology and the collaborative project that is the sort of scholarship and activism nonprofit that that we that we run is, is about relationship. We we've got to figure out how to be in relationship. The ways that we the ways that we can end things like white body supremacy, the economic supremacy of capitalism, the militarized war machine is by and through relationship. And a lot of people don't realize that. People think, well, let's just get the right policy, let's just get the right right belief structure. Listen, you can have all that in place, but if you do not have relationship, we won't get anywhere. And so when I hear people sort of criticizing activist theology and whatnot, I'm like, but do you understand what we are trying to do? We are trying to recover relationality because if our ethics is not rooted in a generative and hospitable relationality, then we cannot be iterative and emergent and adaptive in today's world. That is activist theology. And, you know, and I think, you know, for someone like you who has spent, so much time and energy and effort studying your way through these things, right. And, and doing the hard work, obviously not everybody's going to do that. So the more people that you can have in relationship to you, the more these ideas can spread and the more these actions can spread You know, a, a phrase that you use in the book that I love is that, that you're all about democratizing ideas in order to translate that into action. And I love the idea that you, that you sort of say like, Hey, let's actually bring this to the streets mm-hmm. in a way that actually will affect people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, as you say, all theology is ethics, but if we're not mindful of it, we end up um, doing a lot of harmful theology uh, in the midst of just our everyday lives. That's right. So uh, we have on this podcast, we have a lot of listeners who are um, former evangelicals or maybe even current evangelicals that, that like you would love to, to hold on to their tradition. And yet it, it's, it can be so toxic. Talk about a little bit about kind of how you came to where you are. Like you grew up where, where in Texas uh, did you grow up? So I was born in Longview, Texas, which is East Texas. Yeah. Um, so you might, you might know Texarkana area, not, it's not far from Texarkana. Uh, and then at 12, I moved to live with my white father in San Antonio and lived there for a while and then went to college in West Texas. So I've kind of been in every every sort of geographic region uh, in Texas, spent my summers in Mexico growing up. You know, my mom's family is from Mexico. My dad uh, remarried a, a Mexican woman who had family in Mexico. So 
you know, I've been really enculturated in and the geography of Texas and, and Mexico. But I, I went to college in West Texas at what was then a, a kind of progressive Baptist university. It, it has since turned w- way more conservative um, and has closed the School of Theology uh, and, and everything, which is very sad. Um, to, to remain that conservative, you have to stop doing theology, I think. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just am like, this is very bizarre. But, but you know, pe- people, you know, deconstruction is a term that gets tossed around a lot. And uh, it's very interesting to me, as someone who's been trained in philosophy and theology, who has studied the philosophy of deconstruction, uh, and then to see that term applied in, in evangelical circles, um, you know, I started my deconstruction process when I was in college, uh, before deconstruction was a thing. <laughs> right. You know, I was I was reading feminist theology. I was reading all these things that was critiquing the normative discourse, uh, the androcentric discourse, the patriarchal discourse. Uh, and then, you know, later began studying Derrida, which is the father of deconstruction. And, and I started hearing sort of refrains of I'm deconstructing, I'm deconstructing. And I'm like, what does that mean? You know, like, everybody, and everybody has a different definition of what that right. means, right? And, um, you know, when I was in seminary, I, I left Texas and, and went and did my seminary degree. I did an academic degree. I didn't do the traditional MDiv. Um, um, w- when I did my my seminary degree, I-, I knew that I wanted to go on and and do a PhD, uh, and I and I felt called to this vocation of theologian. Mm-hmm. During that time, I was participating in an ordination experience that um, was very complicated and. Uh, really just toxic and harmful um, to me and the other people participating in it. And, and I ended up leaving the church uh, as a result of that. And, and I, I didn't care to hang on to anything. I, I sort of sure. became a self-proclaimed agnostic and was like, fuck this, this is, this is bullshit. But I, I remained committed to studying theology um, in a non-confessing way, um, mm. because it mattered to me, because I, I could see how harmful it was um, for people. Yeah. And you know, went on to to do the the PhD and was simultaneously deconstructing and reconstructing, trying to figure out um, what what did like what am I doing yeah, <laughs> in my yeah, vocation? Sure. sure. That, that had to have brought a, a, an interesting perspective, though, to your theological study, because you're you're approaching it as an outsider. So what's interesting about this is, is that um, I, I started receiving lots of invitations to, like, go speak at places, go preach and whatnot. And I would be in these places and people, you know, there would be song or hymn and my body responded <laughs> because that shit is in my DNA. Yeah. It's in my bones. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I've always been very compelled by the stories of Jesus and, and I've always sort of said, I'm agnostic, but I'm a follower of Jesus. Yeah. And, um, 
and, and then of course, you know, the the election of Trump sort of bastardized Christianity, and so to call yourself Christian really meant being in a, in deep alignment with things like white supremacy and Christian supremacy, and so I I, I struggle with how the category Christian is deployed uh, right now. But I, but but to think about being a follower of Jesus, uh, the teachings of Jesus, not the teachings of the church, but the <laughs> yeah. teachings of yeah. Jesus, not the teachings of the institution, but the teachings of Jesus in community. Now that's the kind of Christian I can be. Right. Um, I mean, I am an ordained Baptist clergy person. I, I'm also uh, probably. Um, I don't really identify as conservative or liberal, though those or progressive or traditional. Um, the, those categories come from a 19th century liberal um, sort of framework that doesn't, they don't capture my theological commitments. Sure. Um, they, they, you know, I, I think about progressive Christianity uh, having an eschatology of imperial optimism. And and having hope and people like Joe Biden, yeah, right, yeah. and calls for unity and and whatnot. And 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 I and I want to say, well, when you look at the story and the and the life of Jesus, uh, you see a different contour mm-hmm. of life, and one that I think is liberation, one that spoke back to Babylon. Yeah, and the reason why the the crucifixion and the resurrection is so profound in the story and life of Jesus is that it makes a profound break with the dominant system right and and liberal conservative progressive traditional agendas do not make a profound break with the dominant system yes and so whether or not you believe in a literal or metaphorical resurrection that now I'm not concerned about dogma what I'm concerned about is how do we live a resurrected life? Yeah, yeah. If, if, if all of what we are is comprised of energy and what we know scientifically about physics is that energy never dies, right. it just gets repurposed. Yeah. Then we are already participating in the full life of Jesus, the resurrected one in everything that we do. And if we were all doing that in a way that reduced harm right think about the kind of world we could have yeah yeah so often we we deconstruct within the box that that culture has has built for us you know so it's like we're only willing to deconstruct within these parameters right and and i i think that's kind of what you're saying like like you know deconstruct within the parameters of western individualist capitalism Right. <laughs> which is what a lot of people do rather than say like, Hey, let's look at the whole thing yeah, and um, be willing to, to burn it all to the ground if that's what is necessary. Yeah. You know, th- that, that reminds me of something that's very popular right now, which is abolitionist thinking. And we forget abolition is not just burning shit down. Ab- the defin of abolition that I, that I sort of put forward is creating life-affirming systems. That's why we need to close prisons. That's why we need to defund the police. 
Right. Because these systems are not life affirming. Right. They're life denying. We, we can do better. We don't just, just need to stop doing something. We need to do better. Well, I mean, Rachel Rickett says white people need to do better. So yes, I would, I would agree that, that folks need to do better who are white bodied. Um, but you know, the other thing that comes to my mind is that it, 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 it's not, it's not just, um, it's not just religion that needs an overhaul, right? Uh, religion is imbued in everything that we do, right? It's, it's like the octopus. And when you, and when you cut off a tendril of an octopus, it regrows. That's how insidious and pernicious this is. This is the logic of dominance. And so we, th this is why I talk about composting supremacy culture and, and why things like being faithful in the small things matter. So we're here in California on sabbatical uh, until early June. And I did a whole bunch of research. Where can we buy our groceries? Because th that's an ethical practice. Uh, right now, we, we buy our groceries from, or our veggies from a CSA, a women-owned organic uh, uh, farm. And we buy our meat products from a local butcher shop who has relationships with local farmers. So I'm like, okay, well, that's our practice. So I'm in the agricultural arm of the Central Valley of California. So let me figure out where do we shop? Thankfully, I've got a good friend who lives here. I've got a colleague who teaches at the local college of the university, and I could get the, the names of places of where, where to purchase, right? Because it, it matters. The, these little things, these micro actions matter. Why? Because it's about relationship. I agree fully. Um, and I wonder, like, how has that played out for you kind of over the course of your life, just recognizing that everything has to connect back, like has to hook back into relationship? Well, I, I, let me first say that life is very mechanical and because of things like capitalism and the ways in which we understand economics in this country and largely globally, transactional relationality is what is preferred. Sure. And so, uh, you know, when I ask someone, how are they doing? It is not, it is not just a, um, perfunctory question. Mm -hmm. I'm actually curious. How, how are you doing? And a lot of people don't know how to answer that question. Right. And so I will say it remains an uphill battle to privilege relationality. Um, people are more concerned with goals and outcomes. What I'm concerned with is how do you live out these ideas? Yeah. And if and if you're not rooted and grounded in relationship, then then the ideas will remain abstract. I mean, the number one reason why oppression exists is because imagination has been policed for centuries. Yeah. And that is a particular kind of relationship that culture has with imagination sure. is one of policing, right? Surveillance. And the reality is, is if we can unshackle ourselves 
from that ideology and stop policing imagination. We can have a different relationship to ourselves and to each other, which will shape and shift our cultural body, which is what my next book is about. And we can kind of see a new vision of democracy. Yeah. Not 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 that I don't want to make democracy into an ideology, but sure. You know, democracy is you know, d- democracy. If you go back philosophically and you sort of dig around, the roots of democracy is communalism. Yeah. I, that is what I'm after. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think the the challenge so often is that. Um, a lot of these terms and phrases have been co-opted and, and twisted to essentially mean um, subjugation to empire. Like, it's like, it's like any, anything good can be twisted into some sort of subjugation to empire. And then my question is always like, okay, (laughs) can we reclaim this or do we have to abandon this? You know? Um, And I think, I think you, you seem to have a, a tenacity to try to reclaim things. And I really appreciate that along your journey. Um, you've had to make some choices as to, um, the way you're going to interact with your faith, the way you're going to interact with yourself. Um, and then the way that, 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 that plays out with others. Like, you know, you, you said earlier, like you feel like you can't go back to Texas because of who you are. And that was, you know, that's a choice that you had to make to say, like, I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to have to, there are things that I'm going to have to give up, some relationships I'm going to have to give up in the process. Can you, can you just talk about that, that journey a little bit? Well, I mean, so it's ongoing, right? Sure. Um, I, I don't know that I will ever arrive, but, you know, there, there is something about how do we remove ourselves from toxic situations mm-hmm. or situations that could potentially be violent? And just seeing all the policies coming out of Texas related to trans youth, yeah. that is not a safe place to be. I mean, they are doubling down on yeah. things. And, and, and Tennessee is not amazing. I mean, it's a, it's, right. it's a red state. Yeah. And, and, and there are anti-trans bills there. So I'm, I'm not saying that Nashville or Tennessee is, is, is any more amazing. But it's about community, sure. And I and I had community in Nashville, yeah. And and um, I knew that Nashville could hold my complexities. Mm. One of the reasons why I left Texas is that I didn't feel like Texas could hold my complexities of being mixed race, of being trans and queer. But Nashville can seem to hold it. T- Tennessee has got a really sort of wonderful immigrant community um, and refugees from all over. Not that Texas doesn't because Texas does have lots of uh, sort of cultural difference. But for me, it was about community and the ability to land in a place and be in community with people. I think it is creating conditions for flourishing. Sure. And so there is a constant leaving and, and a constant returning home for me. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, how, like, what was your process like of, of sort of figuring out who you were? Like you talked about the fact that we don't question our inherited faith. Um, there's a lot that we don't question, right. About what mm-hmm. sort of the things that are like 
plopped on us when we're young kids and we just sort of hang on to them. Uh, a lot of people hang on to them for the rest of their lives. Um, as, as you begin to realize, like I'm, I'm diverging from some of this stuff, both theologically and who I am as a person, like were there, were there people along the way that sort of helped you on that journey? Cause I know, you know, we have a lot of people here who are sort of stuck in a certain theology or within a certain theological framework that actually won't allow them to be who they are. Um, and I know obviously right. you've, you've experienced that. Were there, how did you receive encouragement and how do you now receive encouragement on that, on that path? You know, it's, it's not, it's not all candy and ice cream. Right. Um, you know, I, I get a fair amount of bullying, may, you know, email, hate mm-hmm. mail. Um, I was doxxed on Twitter mm-hmm. um, a, a month or so ago. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not easy work. Um, but I, I believe that, I believe that I'm doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, which is living out a, a generous theology that, that invites people to get free. Yeah. And when we get our hands dirty together, and when we begin to embrace the politics of radical difference in each other, we get a little bit closer to the kind of world we long for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, 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 there's a phrase you use in the book that I think actually encapsulates really well uh, a lot of what we, what we read in the Gospels about Jesus's life. Um, you talk about outfoxing the empire. Yeah, it's all about hustling the system because that's that's where we have power. Yeah, and, and it's about being creative and innovative in, in our hustling in our hustle. Uh, I think one of the greatest things that we can do is stop fucking going to Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, it's just very easy. Stop it. Start buying from a local coffee purveyor. Find out what your local coffee store is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I buy our coffee from a coffee CSA that is uh, um, the it's a co-op. So mm-hmm. each coffee farmer has ownership in the co-op. Sure. They're based in California. They ship uh, worldwide. They've got coffee farmers globally. Um, so we buy from Pachamama Coffee. Mm-hmm. It's based in Sacramento. I found them when I was living here and and teaching. Uh, and, and it's just a very simple way, right? Coffee is um, is a premium commodity. Right. And if Starbucks can charge five and six dollars for a fucking cup of coffee, yeah. I think we can stop buying that and actually investing in community. Right. That that's a very sort of simple easy way now it does mean that you have to make your coffee it means that you stop going through a drive-thru unless you're in sacramento and you can go directly to the place to get your coffee um but that's a very simple way to do it the the other thing is is we we buy our veggies from a local farm Mm -hmm. it's a little bit more expensive but i'm investing in the sustainability of food 
how do we how do we afford a, a, a veggie CSA and 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 invest in sustainability and resilience of the land? Well, we cut back over here on how much bourbon we buy or, or whatever. Yeah. It really comes down to, to priorities, right? Like it's, every, a, it's every, about values. Yeah. Like my life has been so steeped in capitalism and the ideas of capitalism um, and the ideas of, of individualism that, that it's like, I, I have to actively work against that. Like, like there's no, that's the default for me. Oh yeah, I mean, it's the water we swim in. Right. I, and and just because I'm mixed race Latinx, queer and trans, that that doesn't mean that I'm also not swimming in the same water. Sure. We're fighting for our fucking lives in this in this toxic water. Yeah. And 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 we have to fight because if we don't fight, we we are so conscripted into the system that if we don't fight it, we it will kill us. Right. Right. Fighting the system might also kill us. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that death is a more honorable death than just being conscripted into a system. I mean, I think about my academic friends who are so conscripted into academia, which is supremacy culture motivated by capitalism and white supremacy. I think about some of my colleagues who they are teaching three classes each semester trying to write articles and books because if you don't publish you perish and how that that system is also capitalistic right it's about transactions it's about outcomes and it's killing them yeah mostly women of color yeah why because that system is made for for cis white men and so we expect everyone else to assimilate and acquiesce to a cultural norm that is not designed for anyone but cis white men. Yeah. And so th- what, what cis white men don't realize is they're also victims of that environment. Right. You know, right. It's, it's like patriarchy. Yeah. Women, trans people and queer people are not just victims of patriarchy. Men are also victims of patriarchy. Right. right. The, the system is toxic for everyone. We've got to de-engineer that shit. Yeah. So I'd rather be swimming in the same water as you and fighting against it yeah. than having us both assimilate and acquiesce into something where we will have a dishonorable death. Right. Not, and not, not to say that this is about martyrdom. It's not about martyrdom. But the kind of legacy that I want to leave is that I want to be a good ancestor. Yeah. And to be a good ancestor means that I that I rage against the machine. Yeah. I have to. Yeah, that's great. The habit, the the ritual of uh, of the rich ruling class is to satiate the masses to such a degree that they can control them. And you know, it that has been very effectively done uh, through, through economic models and through, you know, the ideas of land ownership and all those sorts of, you know, like you read about, um, you know, the, the indigenous history of the U S where the land that was, that was stolen from indigenous people was largely given to, you know, poor white immigrants to bring them into the fold and to to say, hey, you're one of us now. You're a landowner mm-hmm. now. You're a 
you know, so let's fight all these brown skin people because it's us versus them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know how they substantiated that through religion. They substantiated that through religion. So it's so all these things are imbricated, yeah. right? It's economic models, yeah. it's religion, and we have to remember Marx, Karl Marx. Marx mm-hmm. said religion is the opium opiate of the masses. This is right. this is how we can give the crumbs to the most impacted. Yeah, and it and it plays out every day. It does. People are yeah. people are so subdued, so numb because these systems are so imbricated on, on each other. Yeah. And, and, and terrified, mm-hmm. like terrified that if I don't do X, Y, Z thing, I'm going to burn in eternity. Right. Like the, the fear that we see, I think, uh, across cultures, but, but this sort of American conservative evangelical era, um, really highlights the fear that we see something like something like January sixth, you know, insurrection. There's so much fear there. Mm-hmm. Something like like these these anti-trans bills. Like, why are you so afraid of a trans teenager? Well, I think I think it's the fear of difference, and, and I think it is about the need for power and control. There's a lot of people who, I mean, this is why people hang on to their inherited faith because it's about power and control. And we have to remember that white folks have ancestral trauma. The reason why racism exists is because of white on white violence. And now they've just, now white folks are just displacing that white on white violence onto people of color. So we have to remember that the reason why things like supremacy culture exists goes way back to Greek Hellenism, I think, not just the British empire. Yeah. Though that did accelerate it, sure. But but we have these philosophical strands that support power and control for the free class. Who is the free class? Well, those are white body people, mostly men. Yeah. The women, the white women, do benefit, right, from things like affirmative action and so forth. But it's really about how disconnected white body folks are from themselves. Mm. They're so out of control with themselves Mm -hmm. that they need power and control. Yeah. And as long as I can subjugate someone else. Exactly. And I have, yeah. If people are seeking power, they have to subjugate someone. There has to be someone else lower on the totem pole. Right. Right. It's it's an abuse of power. Power, power is not inherently bad. Yeah. It's the abuse of power that is bad and toxic. We, I think we need, some forms of power to exist in the world. The, the, the form of power that Jesus exercised was, it was more of a distributed form of power. If we can get back to that or some form of that, that would be better. And so and, and this is not, this is not um, making Jesus into an ideology. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, here's a story that has shaped lots of people and has been distorted. Yeah through and by abuses of power and we could do yeah. better. Yeah. How, how much of that as a theologian, how much of that blame do you lay at the foot of Constantine, like fourth century, the sort of like grand bargain between empire and religion? Well, I mean, I think you, I think you see that is when 
what I call empire religion really emerged. Mm -hmm. And you see the um, relationship between politics as a po politics as a category of organizing people mm -hmm. and religion, which is a meaning make, which is a, which actually is a phenomenological category of meaning making. So you have religion and politics as these two categories now deeply related. And now let's create, let's do citizenship from that intersection. Yeah. That is dangerous. Yeah. That is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Because it puts, it puts the, the communal power of religion in the hands of autocratic right minds yeah right yeah right yeah um so something that that you um actually wrote to me an email uh when i asked you about sort of like like what message you wanted to send in this interview um you you did a very jesusy thing actually which was you ask a question um <laughs> and your question is how can we build the kind of world we long to inhabit um, and I'm just going to flip your question right back to you. How can we build the kind of, because I think you have, um, you have this combination of like, like pessimism about the current systems and being able to rehab those systems. Um, but an optimism that, that there is a way forward, that there is a way to build the kind of world that we long to inhabit. How, how do we do that? Well, I, th I think it's, uh, through conversations like this, but at a dinner table with roasted chicken and greens. Yeah or on the porch with bourbon or whatever you drink, yeah, iced tea. Um, I think we need to be having conversations with each other. And, you know, I'm really excited for this new book um, so that we can really talk about the intersection of politics and theology in a, in a more robust way. Uh, but but I, I think we need to return to the practice of listening and the, and the practice of conversation. Yeah, um, yeah. But with those two, it needs to be at the intersection of contemplation. Sure. So, so talk about the book. Um, obviously, it's not. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you have a if you have a, a a date of publication, but you're you're working on it. So tell us about this this book that you're working on. Yeah, I just turned in the draft to my editor, and so I'm, I'm actually waiting for my editor to, to get back to me with revisions. I'm sure there will be plenty. There are gaps, <laughs> I, you know, there are lacunae, yeah. you know, I just, there's lots of work to be done. But basically the book is on um, bodies, embodiments and democracy. Mm. And, and, my, and my thesis is if we can learn to be in relationship with ourselves, with our own bodies, it changes the ways that we are in relationship with other people. So interpersonal relating. Mm. And when we can do those relationships from embodied places, from grounded embodiment with empathy and intimacy, then it changes our cultural body. And when our cultural body changes, we get a new vision for democracy. So I'm sort of saying uh, embodiment is a vision for democracy. What mm. what it, what does embodied democracy look like? Yeah. So it's a little bit about the book, and we'll see how it lands with folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think um, you know you have you have a lot of wisdom to offer people 
um, both from your studies and from your lived experience. And I appreciate you uh, being on the podcast. I appreciate you, um, you know, all, all the, all the ways in which you are contributing this conversation. Um, your website is irobin.com. That's, uh, R O B Y N irobin.com. Um, activistheology.com. People can find a bunch of stuff there. Yep. And then on, uh, Twitter is at irobin, right? Yeah. And, um, well, Twitter and Instagram, right? I yeah, Robin Twitter and, and yeah. um, activist theology. Uh, Dr. Robin, thank you so much for being on the podcast, for all the work that you're doing, um, and for the fact that you're doing it in public, because let's just be honest, uh, it's a way bigger pain in the ass for you to do it in public than it would be to just um, hide behind a screen somewhere. Um, so. that, is, that, is, that is the T. <laughs> yes, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, I look forward to a, a chance when we can sit down at the table and, and enjoy uh, some food and beverage IRL. Definitely. Hopefully, hopefully very soon. Uh, have a great, have a great sabbatical and thank you. Thanks. Thanks for being part of the ocean. Thanks so much. You know, in this format, we can only begin to dip the tip of our toe into the wisdom of Dr. Robin. When you read their book or listen to their podcast, you'll begin to understand how they're putting all of those degrees to use in real world ways with real people in real relationships. I hope that Dr. Robin challenged you as they have me. And I hope that we can all work together in their words to build the kind of world we long to inhabit until next time. I'm Adam Mosley and that's all I've got. The ocean podcast is produced and written by me, Adam Mosley and recorded in Athens, Georgia. The theme music was composed by Irina Kakiani and the opening voiceover is by Rachel West. This podcast is copyright 2021 by Adam Mosley. For reproduction, interviews, or bookings, email request at theoceanpodcast.com.